Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. <gasps> there are secrets in every corner of this village. Today we are discussing The Village. That is a great line from the movie. Hopefully it didn't sound too cheesy. This is your co-host, <laughs> Corbin. I'm Alan. Yes, we are discussing M. Night Shyamalan's sixth film, uh, which I do like the title of. It wasn't the original title, actually, but we will be talking about that here very soon. But thank you for joining us here at Silver Screen Guide to talk about The Village. I'm excited to talk about this one because it's one at the time many people were very excited about and then mad about, and now I think people have accepted it for what it is and are liking it better now that they understand what they're in store for. Right, because the uh, the trailer for this movie kind of paints it as a horror film, and it kind of isn't that. It's a thriller, but not necessarily in the going towards horror here, but the trailer definitely depicts that as a horror movie for one reason or another, and obviously since that isn't what it is, people were kind of mad about that. And if you don't want to miss our next Shyamalan reviews, and if you don't want to miss the previous Shyamalan reviews, go ahead and catch up on those. The link will be in the description for the previous five films, and uh, we will be having new Shyamalan reviews as well coming up. So make sure to subscribe, share with your family and friends. Also, you can subscribe through Facebook, Twitter. You can subscribe through email. All of those links are in the description below. And if you want to hear some more episodes or even our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers and even movie commentaries, all kinds of bonus goodies more so than that, then just for the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee, you can go to our Patreon page and support us. And that does help us keep the lights on over here. And by lights, I mean bandwidth. So, uh, we would much appreciate that, and you get some really cool stuff that's yours to keep, so that's a great way to engage with us further. But The Village did come out July 30th, 2004, right during that summer season, and it was, what, two years since Signs had come out, roughly? Yeah, because Signs came out in August, so yeah, pretty much about two years. Yeah, and Shyamalan said that during signs he really didn't know what his next project would be he hadn't wrote anything down he was kind of confused on what to do so ultimately he came up with the village and he does have two uh notable cast members returning most notably walking phoenix is back yeah back from signs and i will go ahead and note here that Bryce Dallas Howard is a major character in this movie, and she becomes, from what I understand, her face is on the poster, a major character in, I think it's his next movie, Lady in the Water. So. Yeah, I, I I don't really know because I haven't seen that one. I think, that's her, I think that's actually the one that I know the least about in terms of these Shyamalan movies. Because coming into this one, I realize about... 10 minutes in, I know the twist of this. I've heard it before, which seems to be a running thing for me. Somehow I know all of these twists in these Shyamalan movies. What? Yeah. Oh, wait. So, so I mean, you knew the twist to the village? Yeah. I mean, okay, there's technically two major twists. Right, right. One comes first, the other comes second. Well, I won't say what they hear right now. Don't worry, listeners. Don't start freaking out, ripping your headphones off. Right. 
Alan, which twist? Was it the first or the second? Or both? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think they one kind of leads into the other. And so yes. once, I, once I figured out one, the second one wasn't really that big of a surprise. Really? Okay. Yeah. Wow. So... Yes, I knew one twist, and then when the other one when the other one was revealed to me, I was like, "Oh well, of course." It was oh. kind of like, "Oh no, what the heck?" Kind of a feeling. So, are you talking about the f- are you talking about the final twist, or did you know the final twist, and then when you learn the first twist, you're like, "Duh." Yeah, it's the final twist. Okay. Yeah, that was when I knew first. Dang. Okay. See, I went into this movie completely blind. I remember the trailers in 2004. At this point, I would have been nine years old. Definitely not allowed to watch the PG-13 Shyamalan films uh, because they were always quite frightening from the trailers anyway. So I, I don't really, I like vaguely remember these trailers. I remember some of my older cousins talking about it. One of them might have purchased it on DVD and I saw it sitting on their shelf. And of course, being the young film aficionado I was, I was always curious. I always wanted to watch movies that I wasn't supposed to. Nothing bad. I, well, I guess that depends on your definition bad. But nothing bad like Aliens, you know, I wanted to watch that when I was young. Um... I was somehow I got really fascinated with the horror movies like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy, uh, Jason, whatever. Definitely not allowed to watch those, of course, until I got older, and for good reason. You shouldn't let your kid watch that. Um, right. But that didn't stop me from being Mr. Curious about everything. And The Village was one that always kind of, I think, freaked me out. Lady in the Water, more so. We'll talk about that next time around but also cherry jones is black is back she played the sheriff in signs and oh uh, yeah. yeah alan did you uh notice who the cinematographer was for this film see i was wondering if he brought back the guy from signs and i was like yeah i was like this just something just seems off about this like this <laughs> this doesn't feel like anything from signs and so after the movie i looked it up and yeah roger deakins the man himself, who has now become more of a legend mm-hmm. uh, in kind of cinematography as of late, is the cinematographer for The Village. Oh, yeah. I was watching the opening credits, which opening credits for Shyamalan films have become a bit of an event in themselves. Yeah. So far, I think my favorite is Signs. Those are really fantastic because the score is so powerful in your face. Right. Whereas now this score was James Newton Howard, of course, is back. He's scored like every Shyamalan film, I think. He did get an Oscar nomination for his score in this film. Yeah, he got the Oscar nomination, but he lost to Finding Neverland. Yes, um, that was the one that ended up winning that Oscar. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've, I don't think I've seen that one. I know um, I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. I've read quite a bit about the worldview of Finding Neverland. Gotcha. And in Brian Godawa's book, Hollywood Worldviews, check it out. And Roger Deakins, I was, saw his name pop up during the opening credits, and I thought, what? Okay, I'm a little more excited now to see. Yeah. I, I guess I missed his name when I was taking notes during his opening credits, because mm. I didn't I didn't see it. until a, I didn't notice it, that it was him until afterwards when I looked up his name, and I looked up who the cinematographer was. And I guess I should disclose, I have seen this movie once before. A few years ago, I can't remember exactly when I thought, hey, it's on Netflix. It's one of those movies I've not seen. I'll give it a watch. 
And I remember my first experience being a good one. I remember um, not having the same initial upset reaction that people did in the theaters because I wasn't very familiar with the marketing material at all. I think I was expecting something mostly different because this movie sort of changes its direction a few times or at least it leaves some red herrings that make you think it's going to be this and then it's not there's quite a few rugs that are pulled out from under us we'll talk about that and why Shyamalan was purposely doing that but this film was originally going to be titled The Woods Hmm. but Apparently, there was another film in production that already had that title, and Shyamalan wanted to be original, like he always does, and he said, nope, it's going to be called The Village from now on. Right. I could see it going both ways, but I I, I guess The Village in my... Well... And I guess in reality, I think The Woods would work a little bit better for a title, but they I think they both work fine. But that would have been interesting to have it been called The Woods instead of The Village. Yeah, it would have. I guess I, I'm glad he ended up on the village. Yeah. Now, the village itself was actually built entirely just like the house was in Signs in the Cornfield. It was built in Chadsford, Pennsylvania, which is where Signs was shot. So, got a bit of a Pennsylvania pattern going on here. He really likes Pennsylvania. Does. Because the movies are always either around Philadelphia <laughs> or filmed in Philadelphia. I think this is the first one since at least... The Sixth Sense that's not staged in Philadelphia, but still in Pennsylvania, so it's in the vicinity. Oh, yeah, I forgot um, Unbreakable had to do with Philadelphia. Yeah. Now, this was really fascinating. The original script was stolen a year before the film's release. Really? Yeah, which prompted some negative reviews. People went online and started reviewing... Shyamalan's Uh, new film based upon the script and uh, people thought from reading the script it was they couldn't believe that it was a Shyamalan film they they were laughing at it it was very negative hmm. they thought it was stupid and they they just couldn't believe the premise so Shyamalan went ahead and shot the movie I don't think he made a lot of changes The one major change that he did make was actually to the end, and he kind of like disseminated it out there that shooting had wrapped, but then he brought the cast members back in spring 2004 and shot more of a longer ending because the original ending had been leaked online. Now, of course, in 2004, the internet wasn't as widely used as it is in 2019, so Quite a few people probably still wouldn't have known the twist going into the theaters, but nevertheless, he wanted something that nobody would know. And that's why he played it so close to the chest right before its release in July. He shot a different ending, I guess. Interesting. Did they say what ending uh, he had planned originally, or would that be kind of considered spoilers at this point? I guess, well, it would be considered spoilers, but... Basically, well, I guess we'll have to get into it. We'll okay. listeners, you'll have to wait till after the spoiler break to hear the original ending for the film. Because I'm curious to know what this original ending is. Now, according to some critics, they liked it because if you watch the trailers for its DVD release, 
they pull out lots of positive snippets from critics, but if you go and look on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 44% critic rating, which makes it rotten. Only 44% of critics gave it a pass, but that's more than Batman v Superman. So that's true. So there's that. There's that. Uh, Roger Ebert, who loved the previous Shyamalan films and thought they were just phenomenal. He was he gave. I want to say he gave signs like four out of four. I can't remember. He gave one of them a perfect score. So he's thought Shyamalan has been like can do no wrong. Right. Um. Well, he uh he gave the the village one out of four. Ooh. He listed it on his most hated list. Oh uh, man! At least for the year, I think. And but the shining moment that everybody can agree on, I think, is the score. AFI has it as one of the best film scores, and like I said, it was Oscar nominated. Oh yeah, I mean it's a great score. I'll say it right now. I think it's a great score. It it is, um, and it's better because I watched it the second time with, well, okay, the third time technically, with I put in headphones so I could really kind of get Ooh. the ambiance a bit better. It, this movie did face some controversy, actually, um, from publishing house Simon and Schuster. They said that Shyamalan copied many of the elements from Margaret Peterson Haddix's book, Running Out of Time, which was pretty popular when I was a kid. Those mm-hmm. were directly aimed towards the scholastic age. Right. And there are a lot of similarities between the two works. It's a little troubling. I don't know, you can't necessarily lay claim to who had the idea first. It's a little murky, so no lawsuit was ever filed. But for Shyamalan, who prides himself on originality or taking a genre we know already, we've known for half a century, he'll do something new with it. So, eh, I don't know. Make of that what you will. And see... I was wondering because I remember the book that they uh, that uh, Haddix had written because I think I think we read it in like middle school or something like that and for whatever reason I still remembered it so when I was watching this movie about halfway through I'm just like Wait a minute. hang on a minute <laughs> something hmm. seems just seems oddly familiar and so I looked this up and that's when I found out that yeah there was a there was going to be a lawsuit which sounds like it never actually fully went through right. Um, I know that the author had said that she was considering all options here, but then I think that's about as far as it went. So, yeah, I was like, this just seems oddly familiar to me. And turns out, I forgot the name of the book until I did some research, but that's when I found out that, yeah, there had barely been some controversy about plagiarism in, in the village, which didn't end in a lawsuit, but came pretty close. I think I tried to read the book. The cover was quite frightening to me. It was like a distressed child or something. I don't know. Right. I th- I like to talk a big game probably back then, say I wanted to watch Alien and something scary. But then, of right. course, I couldn't handle anything scary. I could I could not even handle the trailer, so I couldn't even handle her book, I think. Yeah. But as, as per usual, Shyamalan kind of always works with the same budget, which is a, – it's like a good size, but it's nothing huge. But he has a knack for turning it that into really big profits. So with a budget of sixty million, he domestically grossed one hundred fourteen, which is you know pretty good. Not quite. Yeah, that's good. That's pretty close to double. 
It's close to double. I'm sure he would have liked to have doubled it. And 142 for the foreign market. So a total worldwide was 256 million. So clearly it did great. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good money. Opening which weekend. I'm, which doesn't really shock me because it's, you know, it's Shyamalan and he's pretty much proved himself with his, with his last movies. So. Yeah. And there's always, there was the Shyamalan. <laughs> Yeah, and there was always the Shyamalan hype train where I, despite him never making a sequel so far to any of his films, it felt like that sequel hype. Whereas Alan and I talked about this in our Rambo First Blood Part 2 podcast. Go ahead and listen to that for more details. But if the first film does well and audiences enjoy it, then inevitably the second film will do immensely better. So it seems like Shyamalan is consistent with attracting people to his movies um, for certain reasons. The Shyamalan twist, doing something original, that's what brought in this money. And opening weekend, it did incredibly well. It nearly made back its budget. It was number one with $50 million, and it was the top five. It was in... The top five that weekend was The Village, The Born Supremacy, The Manchurian Candidate with uh, Denzel Washington, which also opened that weekend, I, Robot, and Spider-Man 2, pretty prominent top five, and The Village was number one. Yeah, that's that's pretty – those are some pretty big players here. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to adjust for inflation, which you probably should, this is actually the third highest grossing Shyamalan film. I mean, I believe it. And I think the thing that kind of like with sequels that bring people back, at least with Shyamalan movies, is everyone knows, especially at this point, now that we're, this is the fifth movie that he's made, well, technically speaking, um, this, everyone knows at this point that there's going to be a twist. There's something to this movie that you wouldn't have known um, beforehand that's going to just blow your mind. And that's kind of become at least from what I understand, kind of become the the staple of Shyamalan. And that's what draw people. That's what draws people in to see these movies. Is okay. What's the twist this time? Right. That's probably what the main draw is for his movies at this point. And it always revolves around, you know, nothing. Not everything is as it seems. Right. Right. There's always some underlying factor. Yes. That and just I, kind of I pulls will- everything on. Puts everything on its head. And I will say that I do uh, like that he causes us to question reality in his movies. What we come to accept as the norm, he's going to cause us to question, is it really? Uh, We'll talk about that after a while, though. This is, I did think, find this interesting. This is the last Shyamalan film to be produced on VHS. I I can understand that. I mean, this is 2004, yeah. so DVD was definitely out there. And in fact, in two years, Blu-ray would be released. I think, yeah, yeah. In two years, Blu-ray would be out. What? So, yeah, I can see why this would be the last one. Did you uh, realize that Bryce Dallas Howard and Judy Greer are sisters in this and in Jurassic World? I saw that on the IMDb trivia, and I was oh. like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, remember, I remember talking about them. I think... Judy Greer, I don't think she had too long of a of a screen presence, though, if I remember right. No, no, she's in. I don't know. She's barely in it. She's in the first. Yeah, she's in the the first third, and that's really it. 
Right. And then she kind of pops up here and there. She just kind of fades out. And just kind of, yeah, she just disappears after that. So, uh, do you want to you wanna know the audience score for this movie? I looked it up briefly, but give it to me. I want to know it. Okay. Audiences gave this film a C. Ooh. Which is bad. Because I saw the IMDb score and the meta in the meta score, a Metacritic score, and those are pro both pretty low on IMDb. So yeah. I mean, that doesn't really surprise me that a C is what it ended up with on uh, Cinema Score. Mm-hmm. I kind of figured that's considering uh, what I've heard about this from when it was released. I kind of it doesn't really surprise me too much, but that does hurt. C a C, uh, which we have discussed in the past. Um, usually B plus and higher is meant is usually good for audiences. So C is not great. Yeah, I I was, I honestly I was very surprised to see this film had a C. But in certain ways, it confirmed my suspicions and everything that I had heard about how the marketing really soured people's take on the film or how right. they left the film. And it does hold a six point five on IMDb, which is pretty mediocre. Yeah, it's not very high. Signs is signs though isn't very much higher. I think it's a, that's a what a six point eight, right? Yeah, or six point seven, something like that. Yeah, it's not much higher. Nothing compared yeah. to Unbreakable, which is in the sevens, and the Sixth Sense, which are which are much higher as well. Right. So, right. and because I love Letterboxd and I use it all the time, I'll throw that in there as well. Most on average, most Letterboxd users gave this film a 6 out of 10. Okay. So, pretty much um I'm I'm seeing that it's kind of mediocre in the audience's eyes. Yes. Cuz that's usually what 6 ends up being is relatively mediocre. Yeah, that's true. And I did. I wanted to really immerse myself in the marketing campaign. Alan and I both did. I wanted to know what mm-hmm. were people seeing on their television screens in the previews before other movies to get them excited for the village and all of the trailers it puts a total and i watched four or five of them including the dvd releases like the dvd promos it puts a total emphasis on the creatures the trailer speaks of the creatures coming in to terrorize the village that's sort of untrue that's really not the actual plot and if you take a look at the main poster for the film, not the one with somebody staring from the woods into the village, I think that's a great poster. Um, the main poster on IMDb has text, and it looks like these hands are holding a manual, which we never see in the movie, but it's more or less stated throughout the film. These kind of three beliefs or rules to live by. The first one is, let the bad color not be seen, it attracts them. Two, Never enter the woods. That is where they wait. Three, heed the warning bell for they are coming. So honestly, I found the trailers aren't that good. They really don't do the movie justice or they really don't show off Deacon's gorgeous cinematography very well. I was I was watching this movie and I'm like, dang, they could make such incredible trailers that would have been cut more so today probably that way um, back then it kind of suffers from that nasty early 2000s camera moves really fast zooms in fast just eh, it's it's not good what did you think alan yeah the trailer that i watched def doesn't really put emphasis on the uh the creatures but definitely tries to make it look like 
is going to be a spooky horror movie that's set in the that's a more of a period piece. Somewhat uh similar to I guess a more recent example would be The Witch. Um which is not really what we get. I mean kind of, but not really. So yeah, there are some marketing lies here where they and I get it too because a Shaolin making a period piece, how in the world would that work? I think what they did were doing here is trying to get audiences to go and see it because this making it more of a horror movie or make it look like it was more of a horror movie would be a thing that would be more likely to draw in audiences. That's where I, that's where I'm guessing they went, why they decided to go this route. But I mean, if you watch the movie, you know that that's kind of not true. It's more of a drama with some spooky scenes in it. So it's, it's not a very good trailer because it doesn't really paint what the movie's going to be about. Or the feeling or the tone that it's going for. It kind of just goes for what happens in a couple of scenes and then paints that as this is what the movie's about in the trailer when in reality it's totally not that way. Um, yeah, I agree. And my other take is that Shyamalan got too big for his britches. He got a little too fancy with his ideas. He wants to keep us just as afraid and in the dark as the villagers. He wants us in that mindset Hence, he's going to even push that in the marketing, which – and then he's probably hoping that we'll go in with those feelings. And then we, just like Bryce Dallas Howard's character, will be pretty okay with the revelation. And my other guess is he was – this was kind of like a backlash towards the script being leaked online. So if people were disseminating the original ending, then he wants to really prop up this movie as being a horror movie. So yes, it's definitely much more of a horror suspense thriller. That's what the trailer is setting the audience up for. What we get is more so a romantic drama, a definite quietish period piece with small elements of horror right and i mean now usually a trailer isn't necessarily done by the director there are some rare instances where that's the case so in reality they'll send it off to more of a trailer house who will get who compile all the footage and make us like make a trailer out of it so it's possible that Shyamalan didn't have any control over this although it is an interesting thought that you bring up that he might have done this or this may be done to kind of subvert expectations Partly because of the script being leaked, but at the same time, also being something that is going to be delving into what the film is about, which is everything is not what you think it is. In reality, it looks like it's going to be a horror movie, but actually it's just a, more of a drama with some spooky scenes in it. It's an interesting thought, um, but once again, you still are subverting expectations. You're making the movie out to be what it actually isn't there in the very end. So that's still an issue, and no wonder audiences were not very happy about that back in 2004. Yeah, I just could I couldn't imagine how he thought this would play out well. Yeah. How audiences That's why I'm wondering if That's why I'm wondering if maybe he didn't have control over the trailer. It's possible he did. I have no idea of knowing that. Cuz not all the time are, are directors in charge of their trailers. It could be more of a uh could be more of a uh studio thing. Right. Usually directors are never in charge of their trailers. They never cut the trailers. Studios like Alan said right. have trailer houses that that's their main job is they cut movie trailers. Now, the marketing, how it was cut would have had to have been marketed from the studio. That would have been their direction. But with 
Shyamalan it being the director and having so much prowess and creative control, there's no way I think that they got away with this without him giving some kind of approval. And I did hear that many years later, I think it was, there was like a panel for the the visit or split. He was there. It might've been at like Comic-Con or something. Um, one of the fans asked him what was one of his regrets with his previous films. And he said one of his regrets was not having better marketing for the village because he thinks that would have um, changed people's reaction to the film. And I, I think he's right. Yeah, I I would I would think that he was right if they if he marketed it as more of what the movie was actually going to be about rather than trying to make it more uh I guess audience agreeable then it may have been may have been much uh it wouldn't have been as harshly as harshly received as what it ended up being. Yeah, and one of the spooky things was when I was watching the trailer last night. Okay, in the trailer and in the movie when William Hurt's character says, you have strength I'll never have, I was watching the movie on the TV, I was watching the trailer, Those that scene synced up simultaneously with the movie on the TV and the trailer on my computer. So well, I had weird. the subtitles on the TV and I had the, the TV on mute. Um, and I had the trailer, the audio coming through the computer and I hear... And I see him on the computer, and then I look up, and I see the words on the screen. And it was simultaneous. I thought, okay, this is freaky. That's weird. Def- <laughs> what a quinch. Yeah, I've never had that happen before, how it synced up perfectly like that. Well, listeners, if you haven't seen The Village, I do hope we've kind of recalibrated your expectations or giving you the proper expectations for what to feel and think when you're coming into this movie. Um, with everything we've been talking about. We are going to go ahead and spoil The Village right now. We're going to talk about the film. So if you haven't seen it and you don't want the twist ruined for you, and honestly, I highly recommend you don't have this twist ruined for you. I recommend you pause it right now, go ahead and watch the movie, come back and click play here on the podcast, and you'll be ready to hear all of our thoughts on The Village. In 1897, a village is plagued by those we don't speak of. This seemingly quiet, sleepy village known as Covington Woods is growing increasingly frightened of small, dead-skinned animals littering the town. Further yet, a young boy, Daniel Nicholson, has died from illness. Lucius Hunt, played by Joaquin Phoenix, requests to travel to the towns to retrieve medicine in case such an illness arises again. But the elders of the town, including his mother Alice, played by Sigourney Weaver, does not allow him to leave. One night, one of those we don't speak of breaches their borders, wreaking terror on the village. Ivy Walker, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, who happens to be blind, is nearly overtaken by one of the creatures, but she is rescued by Lucius. The two have had unspoken feelings for each other, but now they openly express their love and intention of marriage. But not everyone is pleased with such an announcement. Noah Percy, played by Adrian Brody, who is mentally retarded, has always loved Ivy, so he decides to stab Lucius to death. Realizing the horror of his actions, he turns himself into his parents and is locked up in their home. Distraught, or it might not be their home. It's called the quiet room, I think. 
Distraught, Ivy requests to travel to the towns to find medicine to heal the barely hanging on Lucius. Her father and the leader of the town, Edward Walker, played by William Hurt, against his beliefs decides to let her go, which happens to break the oath he and the other elders swore before settling the town. But before she leaves, he reveals to her the darkest secret of the town. Those we don't speak of are actually the elders dressed up in costumes, using superstition to maintain control over the village. As Ivy journeys to the town, she encounters none other than one of the creatures. Frightened and questioning her father's revelation, Ivy figures a way to trap a creature in a pit. In a deep pit, actually. Alas, the creature is none other than Noah, who has been plaguing the town all along. He dies in the pit, and Ivy reaches the towns by climbing over thick vines that are grown over a large wall. Except on the other side of that wall is modern-day America. See, in the 1970s, a group from the local counseling center who all had terribly tragic things happen to their loved ones decided to create an archaic society deep within Edward Walker's wildlife preserve. In order to keep up the fantasy, they created superstitions such as creatures, evil colors, allusions to nightmarish towns beyond the border. Ivy meets a security guard who patrols the border named Kevin, who helps her with the medicine she needs. Back at the village, Ivy returns with the medicine to save Lucius, and the elders decide to use Noah's death to keep up the illusion of the village as credits roll. So, I'm going to go ahead and say that I love this movie for the first half. Mm, okay. It's that second half that I'm just like, eh, I don't know. Okay, I'm going to say I love this movie for the first two thirds. In the the last third, I really have issues with. Yeah. And yeah, okay, let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I, I say the first half because it's, really right about halfway or maybe two-thirds. Of the, I, I think it's about halfway when the main character switches and yeah, it goes from Joaquin Phoenix's character to Bryce Dallas Howard's character. Yeah. And yeah, well, that's when we find out that it's all an illusion and the whole thing is kind of a lie. Yes, the narrative direction of this movie is a bit muddled because Bryce Dallas Howard, who ends up becoming kind of our main protagonist through and we kind of like can look back in hindsight and see like okay sure she she doesn't even pop up until 10 minutes into the movie or so which is really right. weird because we first have well the film starts with a funeral which okay right. i do like first of all i like how it's shot because it's oh, like yeah. the father is grieving all alone and the villagers are watching him from afar it gives a very eerie sense of something strange is going on but it's more so more so just a funeral and then we have a luncheon and then you realize this film to me it felt very like amish or mennonite and we conveniently get a headstone, which is kind of a nice way of relating what year the film takes place. And according right. to the headstone, the film takes place in 1897, but due to everyone's age, it's probably, you know, we've got 25-year-olds at the least. So it was probably taking closer to 
oh gosh, what would that be like? 1875 is when probably the village was founded in the early 1870s right. would be my guess. Right. So opening... Or at least when they... Or at least that's the year that they decided that this is the year we're going to go back to. Yes, yes. Because in the end, you find out it takes place probably in like 2004 or something. Right. Yeah. But nevertheless, we have this illusion that's maintained. And I'll go ahead and say it. I think when I first found out the twist, I was incredibly surprised. I was... The main twist that they've been hiding in this village. I think I really liked the twist. And the second time around, I think I was even more so excited because I had created a new twist in my mind that didn't, doesn't happen. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me go ahead and tell you the, the, the Riley cut, the Riley end. Okay. So in my mind, I remembered, I did remember like Ivy going to the outside world, but I remembered simultaneously, uh, uh, plane flying overhead in the village a really like it was a really high up plane and you could yeah. just see like william hurt's expression just say no this wasn't supposed to happen and everybody's distressed and everybody is just starting to question and then all of a sudden the revelation on both fronts comes and it just kind of all falls apart there at the end so right i think honestly i think that probably would have been a great twist of all of a sudden, you know, they're just living their life and Ivy's about to climb over the wall. But then before she gets over the wall, cut back to the village and then a plane flies overhead. Right. I, I think that would have been great. What do you think? Yeah, it would have been great as long as you don't, as long as you take out the line that uh, M. Night Shyamalan says himself that oh we, this, that this air, that this place over here is like a no fly zone. Yes. And so. that would have, I think that's where I got the thought from is he said gotcha, it's supposed yeah, to be a no fly that. zone. And then I think I reinterpreted that as somebody broke the rule and they did fly over it and that like dispelled the illusion. They couldn't keep the outside world out from the village. Ultimately, right. it would come to them, which doesn't happen. They, they're they still able to maintain the illusion. And right. okay, it's in the – you find out it's in the Walker Wildlife Preserve, which the Walker um, family – my only guess as to how they have enough money for that is we we kind of have this almost a dropped line, but it's really not so much that because he's relating to Ivy that his his dad, which would have been her grandfather, was very wealthy. He mm -hmm. loved to amass money. So I'm assuming he kind of had this trust fund set up and that's just going to be fueling because in order to buy that much land, first of all, and then in order to pay the people, I think that would have already had to have been set up beforehand with with all that money because that'd be incredibly expensive oh yeah absolutely yeah i know i don't know if the if the uh, wildlife preserve was the thing that was completely set up or if they bought the land from the wildlife preserve i'm guessing the yeah. wildlife preserve was built up from this idea from the ground up more or less but yeah it, it would yeah it, it it is exactly stated to us, aside from the fact that yeah, grand grandpa had a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, as to how this kind of all came about, um, I kind of like that it's kind of left in the air. Is not really ex explicitly stated how this kind of whole thing happened, but yeah, we're kind of led to believe that it was grandpa who funded the whole thing, 
and nobody really knows outside of the nobody knows outside of the wildlife preserve aside from maybe a couple of higher ups that was what's really going on in the in inside the wildlife preserve. And then of course everybody who's inside doesn't know what's going on outside of the wildlife of their wildlife preserve or their village more or less. So yeah, I kind of like that is not really explicitly stated to us, but there's enough clues to us to kind of just logically piece together what could happen, what could have happened. And I'm going to say that I do love the twist of this movie. I not the first twist, which is okay, um, and it's quickly undermined thereafter. We'll get to it here in a minute. But the final twist of there, there was this group of people that were just really couldn't handle the real world essentially. And they decided yep. to create, they decided to go back to what they viewed as simpler times where a lot of technology hadn't been created to kind of encroach upon our lives. And even more so, I think the twist works more so in 2019, actually, when we do have iPhones in giant televisions in video game systems that like our technology has just increased so much farther. We have so many more smart devices now. So kind of right. this like attractive thought of what if we could escape this world and all of its burdens and go back to a much simpler time where like William Hurt says, we we're going to preserve innocence and that's what we've done. So I love all of that. I love that thought and that twist and how it's maintained. So I think that's that creativity I like. Yeah, I I do enjoy that these group of people who have kind of seen the horrors of the world are just like, all right, fine, well, let's just move away from everything and back to a, a more simpler time back about 150-ish years ago and just start from there. I, I like that idea, but I think that the twist that goes along with that, that it's actually like modern day times uh, and it's the whole thing is actually a lie. The way that they execute that, especially when they find out that it's all a lie, just kind of feels like it's, it, it feels kind of weak in its execution, partly because um, they begin to explain that this is all a lie after Bryce Dallas Howard has left and gone into the woods. But then there's like a flashback where she, where the scene of play is before she leaves. And then they explain things. And it's kind of strange that they edited it that way. Yeah, but, the, uh, whatever, I guess. There is a number of issues with the editing there towards the end and like the placing of certain sequences. They don't yeah. necessarily give the final twist when he's talking to her. He's basically saying, we have employed superstition in order to right. keep you guys within the boundaries and not go into the forbidden woods. And right. then later on, when she does go out into the real world, it cuts back to them and they're all, well, if not all of them, at least um, Edward and his wife are opening their black box to right. kind of think about where they've come from. And it's, it's a really interesting part from Sigourney Weaver when she says, I keep, I keep that as a reminder of my past. So I won't forget it. And if I forget it, then it will reoccur in another form and it's interesting how they're they're essentially trying to create a new garden of eden all by themselves where no sin could possibly encroach but sin does encroach in a very unlikely form 
in, you know, a mentally handicapped person who's played by Adrian Brody. And we're never left with the realization if what he's doing is just particularly evil and sinister, or he more so thinks of it as kind of a game where he can just kind of scare people because he thinks it's fun. Right. What I'm seeing here, at least with Adrian Brody's character, is um, he doesn't really know what's going on, kind of like with everybody else. And his kind of, I guess, quote unquote, curiosity is the thing that starts this whole unraveling of the of the lies that are being told as truths here. Um, so what I'm seeing with his character is this kind of theme of the preservation of innocence that we have going on here. That's probably the biggest one we have, um, where he, even him himself, he doesn't exactly understand everything that's going on around him. He is able to be the one who's who starts that undoing. Of first off, he kills Joaquin or tries to kill Joaquin Phoenix, and then he is the one who ends up dying and is causes Bryce Dallas Howard to have to go in, and then she finds out the twist, and then because of that, they have to tell the whole. They're going to think about telling the whole village about this whole thing. So, I think what his character is more representative of is this. Once again, same with I guess Bryce Dallas Howard's character who is blind. It's this preservation of innocence. And because of that, because they decide to live on a throne of lies, more or less, that preservation is the thing that becomes their undoing. Right. And also, you can't suppress human nature. No matter right. how pure and innocent you try and instill and ingrain that in people and what you assume, to me, it seems like there was this hubris contained within the elders that they could pretend like nothing happened. And if the children aren't exposed to the horrors of the world, they'll never know them. Therefore, right. they will never be able to participate in them. But then we see kind of this Cain, Abel, human instinct come out where Adrian Brody's character doesn't want Ivy to be taken. Noah doesn't want Ivy to be taken away from him. So he knows mm -hmm. that if he removes, um, what's his name? Uh, Lucius? Lucius, yes. If he removes Lucius from the scene, then in his mind, everything will be okay, but then everything starts to fall apart from there. So that also right. seems to show that, and, and honestly, I, okay, I, even though I do have mostly issues with how the twists are kind of revealed and the editing, there is some really great scenes in the last third of the film, mostly coming from William Hurt's performance, where he's emphatically mm -hmm. emotional with the elders on, you know, he gives a really great um, line and performance there. And I think it's mostly with one shot and it's handheld. So Shyamalan usually does a great job with those handheld type shots where he's talking about, mm -hmm. we need to preserve the next generation. We can't completely hide from the world because... These types of problems happen. Modern medicine is great, and we are missing out on that. What if there's some kind of outbreak? We're really going to have no way of dealing with that. But mostly his talk about preserving innocence, and he's like, we still have preserved innocence, and Ivy's the best way of doing that because she's blind. I really like right. those emotional scenes and how everything kind of unravels, but then they're still able to keep up the illusion. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but because I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But those are those are the positive elements I glean from it. 
Yeah, and I, I kind of go back. I mentioned I kind of mentioned this a second ago, but I didn't really go too in depth with it. But I do really enjoy this idea that uh, these people pretty much voluntarily become more Mennonite or Amish-like, where they reject modern society and kind of live in a, in about 150 years behind. Um, but for them, it's more it's more of a willing it's a willingly they're doing this even after they've already experienced the world. So I like that idea that they decide to go back to old times and we kind of realize that, you know, modern uh, technology, modern medicine is not necessarily bad. It's, hey, it's not necessarily bad, but it's at the same time, there there will always be evils in this world. And even though they try to suppress all of this, it still ends up catching up with them. I do really enjoy that aspect of it because you do get to see how even though they try really hard to preserve all this innocence, it continues to come back. And then, of course, everything's undone from then on. So I think this idea that they are the ones who kind of caused this whole thing, they they set up the they set the plans for this all to kind of unravel. I think that's really well done. I think it's the other twists that they were evil, they were even able to keep up all this this lie for so many years. And um, the, also the fact that it's also modern, modern day. Don't think they were executed very well here. Well, I feel like it. I feel like it brings up a lot of potential to kind of talk about society, and we kind of do that to a certain extent, but not really. It's more along the lines of uh, suppressing curiosity than it is the deconstruction of society. And so I like this aspect that it's pretty much. Uh, saying that you you can't exactly just move away from modern day society. There's a reason why, you know, there's a reason why we continue to progress more or less, and you can't suppress curiosity, and that of course that and the preservation of innocence kind of be kind of becomes their undoing here at the end is these two things that they were trying to suppress the whole time. Uh, they're like you were saying, human nature can't exactly be suppressed to a certain extent, and then because they were trying to do that. It's the thing that ultimately rips the whole thing to shreds almost. Yes, that those factors are completely out of their control. They cannot control human curiosity. Yeah. They cannot control human nature, no matter how much of a simple, archaic society they create. People will inevitably make their own choices and do their own things. You know, to quote right. Loomis from Halloween, death has entered your little town. And that's just an right. inevitability. And usually when you try and suppress something too hard, or I guess that's even just the definition of suppression, whenever you do try to suppress something, that very thing will crop up and come back on you tenfold, usually. It's like right. trying to right. keep a cup underwater. Like if you push it, the air pressure initially, as soon as – you lose a grip on it, which you ultimately will, then it will just come bursting through the surface. And that's really what we see here. Right. Now, we are introduced in the first act to this kind of pain of life in more of a benign form. And in kind of a comical way, actually, when Kitty wants to ask her, wants to ask Lucius to marry her which is very unorthodox, especially right. for their society. 
And it's such a hilarious scene where she's like, I love you more than the moon and the stars and love is a gift. And then it just hard cut to her crying. I loved, I loved that piece of editing yep. and that cut. That was hilarious. But it does show you that life isn't as easy and simple and it doesn't go your way as everything else she was accustomed mm-hmm. to because she was just blissfully unaware about how the how world how life works relationships work and just kind of that immediate pain right. we get right there it's it's a funny way of bringing it up yeah it is very funny it's also kind of also very funny that she goes to her father for the blessing before she even talks to yes. Joaquin Phoenix about this um i think that's just hilarious because uh she's kind of planning beforehand before anything really has happened and she's kind of crafted this whole thing in her mind. And then when he ultimately rejects her, I mean, that's it all comes crashing down. It's it's a funny it's a funny scene. It does set up that there is going to be a relationship, a, a loving relationship between two characters in this movie with Joaquin Phoenix. Because later on, not too long after this, we uh, we find out that Bryce Dallas Howard is kind of having a thing for him and that he also is the other way around. He also has a thing for her, but isn't really showing it. We have this idea that, you know, People, I have the line written down somewhere. Um, oh, I got to find it now. Ah, here it is. So at one point, Joaquin Phoenix says to uh, his mom, uh, Sigourney Weaver, he says, sometimes we don't do things yet others know we want to do them so we don't do them. Basically saying that I like this person, but I'm not going to touch this person because I don't want them to know that I like them. That happens in a couple of scenes. It happens to both Joaquin Phoenix and his mom. Um it's an interesting idea. It's kind of what in the world when he's when he's saying these lines because it kind of is a bit confusing. But it's an interesting idea nonetheless. That is a great scene. The scene you're specifically talking about is when he mentions that everybody has secrets and those secrets are yeah. visibly manifested he in every corner of the village. All of the elders have right. in their house a black box, which to me is an intriguing story element that makes me wonder what in the world do they have locked up in each of their houses and you come to find out it's their past they essentially locked away their past and created a brand new life a brand new world for themselves but that scene does also serve to show us that edward has feelings who is played by william hurt he has feelings for sigourney weaver's character but the only problem is he's married and he has like, right. I don't know, a ton of children. If you're to believe that they have all these little kids running around their house and like nearly grown women as well for daughters. And I will say I was a little confused about that at first because in the opening, they're talking about his wife. They're they're having the elder meeting and they're like, your wife loves this. But then all of a sudden he's like, hey, he likes you. And then she seems to be kind of like happy he likes her. But then in the end, he comes back to his wife, and I'm like, wait, what's going on here? I think we're just supposed to see that that human nature, whether it be for some kind of violence or lust or even for love, it manifests itself in all these ways. And if you try to suppress it, it will ultimately lead to a very unhealthy, unhappy life. For, for all these people. Right. Right. And I think this plot point of Sigourney Weaver 
also trying to find love is kind of not really needed, right. I think. Yeah. Because I feel like this could just kind of be chalked up to solely focusing on uh, the two main characters here of Bryce Dallas Howard and Joaquin Phoenix instead of also branching out into uh, Sigourney Weaver's character and John Hurt's character. I think that it could have just been focusing on these two char- on the two main leads than having to branch out to other characters, but uh, whatever. I do want to go back to the black box for a minute because I feel like that's... I don't... Okay, I don't like the idea I like the idea of the black box where uh, it's essentially a symbol of things in their past life that they've locked away and they only come back to it to remember why they walked away from it. The, the problem is nobody's gotten curious about what's inside these black boxes and has tried to break in and maybe even realize that the world is not what they think it is. Has that just not happened before? Or... I, and it just kind of feels like a weak element of the story, although a good visual, also a weak element logically wise, because I feel like somebody, even if it's just a kid messing around, somebody would have popped or at least tried to open up one of those boxes and see what's inside of it. The film drops us at the breaking point of the village. I totally understand what you're saying, and you're right. There are they're only located within the houses of the elders and not all of the elders have children, right. but some of them do. And they must keep an extremely strict watch over them. Or once again, they may have used some more superstitions to hinder them from opening them. I don't know if that's deleted footage or if they didn't even think of that. Well, that probably would have bolstered that and made that a bit stronger. It's like if you open that, then... You know, step on a crack, you'll break your mother's back. Something because they right. use they have to use all kinds of superstition in order to keep everybody from, I don't know, doing whatever they want. But right. Um, yes, the, the we're like I said, we are dropped directly into the village at the breaking point where the first generation like the first generation, which would be Ivy and Lucius, more so the adults are very curious lucius says i'm not afraid i want to go to the towns and ultimately sometimes like the bird has to fly the nest we all have to grow up we can't be afraid of the world and if people keep pushing back too far on that then like like we said all of these terrible things will happen and somebody will have to leave now as for the execution of the black box i just the whole execution of all of that revelation there at the end, I feel is woefully under underserved. We don't really explore it very much. Oh, yeah. We get like two minutes of it where they just like look at their old pictures. For what reason? Yeah. It's just not it's not well conveyed. Okay, Shyamalan's probably trying to yeah. show, not tell, but he tell he only tells us like, I have a plan. We I know we've had horrible things. Let's go live in the woods that that whole thing is just too small for a build-up i think a payoff yeah i i think that's where my biggest kind of where my biggest issue comes with it at least in this aspect of the black box is that it's i feel like it could almost just be completely removed and or maybe even a better visual is to have uh somewhere like maybe underneath the floorboards is where these black boxes are at or whatever but that aside 
yeah, they just kind of open this box and start looking at things for reasons. I mean, I get that because now that uh, Bryce Dallas Howard knows the truth and has left the village um, to go in search of the other villages and uh, that she thinks exists, they are like, okay, well, they kind of revert back to what life was back before they made this village. And that's why they're looking at the stuff. And I get that. And that's totally fine. But it j- only really goes to show us with pretty poor execution what exactly is inside these black boxes. Because we never really get a clear answer until about this moment. And it, it doesn't it doesn't really fit too well into this scene. Um, which this scene in general just kind of doesn't really fit too well in the rest of the movie. Because it's like it needs to be there, but it's not placed the right way. It's this whole black box thing. I like, like I said, I like the idea, but it's very much an execution kind of thing. Where the the idea is great, but the execution of said idea is, uh, eh, kind of. It it doesn't really make the mark that it should be making. I think what would have been better utilized with the black box is if it contained something Ivy needed in order to get to the outside world or to help her journey so i would have preferred that instead of these weird pig creature costumes are fake i mean i guess it's okay to i would have much um, preferred him to open the black box we're more so wondering what's in there and then i don't know it could have been a key she needed a key to get out or it could have been, I don't know, I, I haven't really given it much thought what was in there. But nevertheless, that would have tied it closer with her journey and with yeah. even piquing her curiosity a bit more, I think. Right. Because the black box is, I think, only mentioned one or two other times, like extremely briefly. Yes. Until this end scene where they finally open it up. Mm-hmm. So it, there's not really much intrigue there. It's just like, okay, that's a thing, but so what? You know. Aside from the bigger question of, what really is outside of these woods? That's the bigger question. And the black box is just there. It's more of a personal reminder for the elders, obviously, but it uh, it kind of just isn't really executed very well, like we've always stated. So yeah, maybe if they had something in one of the black boxes that helped Bryce Dallas Howard's character for her journey, like you, you were just saying, a key, I feel like that would have been, at least made the box have more reason to exist in the story than just a reminder for the elders. The other thing that bothers me a little bit is they don't address the color of the box because we have two prominent colors in the film, the red color, which is the bad color, and the yellow, mm-hmm. which is like the repellent color. And once again, the the colors are really woefully underserved as to their purpose or yeah. their reasoning or their meaning. It takes a quite a bit of deciphering, I, th- I at least for me anyway to really get at the what these colors are because if you notice around the perimeter of the village they have posts with yellow flags and i think they carry around like yellow paint buckets or something and like paint the posts um everybody kind of has a duty to do that and then they wear yellow cloaks i like the visuals i like the look of the yellow cloaks and stuff it's just we get it towards like in the if I'm not mistaken, where they're in the Forbidden Woods and Kristoff says, then why are you wearing the, I don't remember what it's called. I think it's called like, the, I think it's just called like the safe color. Yeah, then why are you wearing the safe color? We don't learn that until very deep into the movie. So either, I think the box should have been red 
as the bad color and give them some more explanation to that. Or they could have said that is the black color, the, the color of, of darkness or something or forgetfulness or I don't know, something like that. Right. I just think these colors and superstitions are interesting ideas, but don't just drop them in there. We got to do right. a little more with them. Yeah, we know that, I mean, color is a very big uh, point to this movie because like we're just talking about red is this, or red is, yellow is the safe color. Red is the color of those we don't speak of. We find that out pretty early on when a couple girls are messing around on the uh, on the porch sweeping it and they come across a plant that's sprouted that has red berries on it, yeah. I think. And they, they immediately stop what they're doing and they grab it from the ground and bury it. And we find out a little bit later that red is the color that attracts those we don't speak of. Um, so yeah, it's and then later on, Bryce Dallas Howard has the yellow cloak on, even after she knows that this whole thing is kind of a hoax and that there really isn't any threat out in these woods, she continues to have it on. And even Kristop, I think, is Kristop. He he asks, "Why do you have this on still?" That aside, uh, yeah, color definitely plays a very prominent role in the story. But uh, like you were just saying, it plays a prominent role, but. Like to what extent exactly? Because the movie makes it out as if uh, the colors of red, yellow, and eventually black are kind of really important colors, and they have some pretty big meaning. But aside from you know, red is good, red is bad, yellow is good, black is secret. That's really as far as it goes. It doesn't really go much deeper than that. I do like the possible interpretations of the color red. It could be either used as violence, or it could be used as love could possibly even be depicted as lust. I think it's mostly meant to depict the passions of the human and they're yeah. all they're all outside of the village, which means that all of those kind of human passions we've suppressed and we've placed outside of the village and we're just um, going to not really speak of those things. That takes uh, that takes like my own interpretation. Now I don't mind interpreting films. I love doing those interpretations, especially if there's ample room for that. I don't know if that's necessarily the case here. I think I can find that reading in here, just judging by associating the bad color and these bad um, feelings or emotions that they are not speaking of. And we see that it is like the girl sweeping the porch. It's po it's starting to pop up in their life. Also, the dead animals that have been skinned, you see kind of the red muscly sinews of their body in the blood and stuff. Mm -hmm. And we see that begin to litter the village. I like that. We just, it's a little too vague though, like we've said. Right. I didn't necessarily find it too vague. I just found it to be unexplored. Okay. Well, then unexplored. I, yeah. I I think I think because um, okay, not so. When I mean I say I don't find it vague, is they use it and the way that they use it, I think ex helps explain why they use the color red. I think I, I think your interpretation works very well with this, where red is kind of this visual of I guess the bad things in life that they perceive as bad, and that's more considered a warning sign, so they keep away from that stuff. And yellow, I just looked up the meaning for yellow. It's more of a symbol for happiness and integrity and things mm. like that. Okay. So it's kind of like the opposite of what they're going for here in red. So they have, you know, these two competing colors, which I looked up on the color wheel, uh, red and yellow are relatively close. So right. they aren't exactly complementary colors because complementary colors would be on the opposite, si opposite sides of the color wheel. 
So they're kind of opposing colors. So what I'm seeing here is uh, instead of taking this idea of the color red and then diving into why they use the color red, they kind of just only leave it up and really leave it up to the audience and really only kind of give us an idea that this is meant for the bad things in life. And we don't touch those bad things in life. And if we find something like this, there's a color of red in the village, we have to make sure to get rid of it because then those bad things of life will come after us. It's interesting that they decide to do this. I just wish they would have gone deeper with it because they really only go somewhat surface surface level with that idea of the color red or really just any colors in general. They only really take it subsurface that's really about as far as I go. And red and yellow have come to serve as kind of universal traffic symbols. Red means stop, yellow means caution. Right. And we could take that here as red means stop, don't go any farther. Yellow is Mm -hmm. be cautious and prudent with essentially everything you do. And I do want to talk about the color palette for this movie is like fairly muted, but also the cinematography is muted, placid. It really fits perfectly in this kind of Amish Mennonite setting. And most shots are from a distance, which is, which to me gives the feeling of the emotional coldness of the society and especially what is seemingly a close knit society is actually very distant. And close-up shots are used to convey some either like a really happy emotion or some sort of trauma because – And – What were you going to say? Well, keep going. Keep going. Uh, Just a few examples of more of the close-up shots is when we see Noah running after Ivy. He's happy. When – Lucius and Ivy are about to kiss. It's an it's a really close up shot there, and whenever Ivy is afraid towards the end, that's a close up shot. So I'm just showing that emotions are conveyed close up, whereas the distance conveys people are literally distant from each other and just emotionally cold towards everything. So it's really not this warm paradise they would want us to think. Plus, honestly, it just looks cold there, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a lot of fog. Looks chilly. Yeah. And I, the moment I realized, I'll go ahead and say it, I think this probably has some of the best cinematography that we've seen so far from M. Night Shyamalan. And that's saying quite a bit because his last four movies have had really good cinematography pretty much mm-hmm. for each one of them. And mm-hmm. that's also not a very big surprise because Roger Deakins is now behind the camera, not a different guy that we've had before. And one of the opening, in the opening scene, we have the funeral with the father grieving over a casket. Uh, and there's a fantastic shot of the father holding onto the casket and he's standing be- and he's right between the grave where it's going to be buried, then him, and then he's holding onto the casket. And I love this visual. It's an overhead shot of him holding onto this grave, uh, holding onto this casket, not wanting to let it go. And it does kind of raise this question later on is if somebody went and found medicine before the son died, could he have been saved? And that also kind of brings up the later as to why he lets Ivy go in the end is because he may believe that, yeah, maybe modern medicine can save us or can at least save our friend, uh, our friend Joaquin Phoenix. And I, I just, I, I love this visual in the, at this opening. And then you've also got plenty, like plenty of other great moments of cinematography on display. Like when the, uh, when those who do, we don't speak of come into town 
you the the family that Ivy's a part of with uh, with uh with Lucius are hiding underneath the floorboards in like this like hidden area underneath the house. And there's like this line of light that's coming up from above them. And you kind of see how their camera rotates and shows the whole family. And it's just this line across their faces of light. Very interesting cinematography all the way around. I think this probably has some of the best cinematography, cinematography that we've seen so far from Anna Shyamalan's movies. Yeah. The only other cinematography I was thinking would rival this is The Sixth Sense. I would personally say, at least in terms of distinct style, would be unbreakable but both like i mentioned just a second ago they're really close they're all really good in terms of in terms of visuals here that is one of the better scenes i think is when ivy is holding her hand out the door and she's waiting for lucius to come and it's like he's possibly not coming and then out of the shadows you see one of those things coming towards her and then lucius grabs her hand um i do really like that whole scene in general the mm. slow mo part of it with the music, I'm not. Yeah. It doesn't completely work for me. Uh, that that could have been fixed in editing. I think I understand it's going for emotion and not excitement. I would say, right? Um, yeah, it's showing that he really does love her, and he's going to. Can we find out later that he would do pretty much do anything to keep her safe, and that there, even though he is Walking Phoenix, is a very brave person. Uh, the thing that scares him the most is thinking that she's going to be in danger. I am a little disappointed that Joaquin Phoenix's character is somewhat underserved. He is just such a kind of simple, placid character, whereas I find Ivy to be very interesting, being not only blind, um, but also her sweet nature, her adventurous spirit, her just kind of she is very happy, but then at the same time, she's also very realistic and sees the world more so for what it is than any of the other villagers do. And I think that that's lended to her blindness is she can't just take everything off of what she sees. She has to question things more right. than everybody else. And I do really love the scene between her and her father where he's talking to her about her grandfather and then he's saying, you're a leader, you're able to handle things more so than other people and that's why he reveals it to her so i'll say the best two players in this are bryce dallas howard as ivy and william hurt i think he really shines there in the third act where his emotions really come through trying to get the elders to understand why he's letting ivy go yeah and i'll say i love joaquin phoenix's character in this movie up until he is bedridden because I feel I really do enjoy the fact that he's a very quiet person and that most of his emotions are told through his expressions. He doesn't really say too much, but looking at how he reacts to things and how he and how he acts around certain situations, you can tell what he's thinking just by his expressions alone. And I really do enjoy that because it's not relying on dialogue to tell you how the character's feeling. You can just look at the guy and get everything you need to know. Unfortunately, his character is only in the movie for really about half of it, mm-hmm. and then he's bedridden for the rest of it while Bryce Dallas Howard takes a, takes the role. And while that's, in theory, not that big of an issue, and I do like her character, it's just unfortunate that, you know, a character that we built up for literally about 50 minutes at this point is just dropped out of for, out of nowhere to serve another character so she can kind of be the one who really goes out and shows us the world even though she's still blind. Like, I understand why they did it, but I don't think that the way that they did it was very well done. That's a twist in and of itself, because when I first saw this movie, 
I, I remember my jaw dropping when Lucius looks down and he sees the knife sticking out of him that Noah right. stabs in him. And then Noah proceeds to stab him again in places that I I thought he was dead. I thought he had murdered him. Right. Come to find out he's not and he's going to be okay, which seems- Yeah, a- we're, we're led to believe that he dies, that Noah is the one who killed him. But in reality, he's just really hurt. He's in critical condition. Yeah, and I understand they chose that path because I guess that was the that was the most logical plot of the movie is how does how do you get somebody beyond the borders of the village and cuz that's what honestly that's kind of what we've been hinting at in building too. I just yeah. remember being shocked. I thought, "Are you kidding me? This main character is dead halfway through?" I know movies like No Country for Old Men, I'm I'm trying not to spoil it. Let's just say our main character doesn't make it till the end, and that was really shocking as well. I know some movies have done that. That came after this. But anyway, some movies have done that before. It's just really surprising and once again kind of subverts our expectations as to who the real hero of the story is. And don't get me wrong, I do like it that Ivy is the one that has to go out there it's it's a gutsy, risky move, and yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if it completely coalesces with the, the whole yeah. story. Yeah, and I mean, this is the this switching of the main character is nothing new. Psycho did this. Ah, we talked about that before. Good point. Psycho is a great example of switching the main character, but that one has a bit of a different reason why it does it because the main character is one of the main mysteries of that story. But that's a completely different movie, and we review that. Um, with this one, it. It, like it's like I just kind of mentioned earlier, it, it they don't really they don't drop us in a place where it feels like it's warranted to just change main characters yet, because Joaquin Phoenix's character still has more to do. It feels like before he's just ultimately dropped, and one of the reasons, one of the things we, one of the one of the aspects of this character is he wants to go out beyond the forest, and he kind of does in one scene, um, but he wants to go out. He wants to explore. He wants to go find the other villages. That's one of his main goals in the story. And he never, he never really reaches that. Bryce Dallas Howard reaches it, but that was never really what she wanted to do from the beginning. She more or less got that from Joaquin Phoenix. So I think this movie does a, doesn't do a very good job at migrating us from one character to the next character. Cause it, I think that there is still more to do with Walking Phoenix's character than when they dropped us or when they dropped him. It's yeah, it's abrupt. Um, the other thing that I think should be a tip off is the elders are composed of men and women. This egalitarian type of society is fairly is more so modern. No, right. nowhere would in the 1890s would women have such a prominent role in leading the society. So, but nevertheless, I didn't really think about it until halfway through the movie. I'm like, wait, why are there women leaders in the village? That right. no way would that have happened in the 1890s because first of all, women didn't even have constitutional voting rights until like what 23 years or so after this movie takes place so that seemed a little off to me it's it i like that they do it in the movie but if you Mm -hmm. are if you're really thinking about it and looking there are kind of little tip-offs as that doesn't really make sense yeah that's definitely a tip-off for the audience to say now wait a minute what 
why are yeah why are women leading in a society that definitely would have done wouldn't have done that that's a definite tip off that this really isn't actually taking place in the year that they think it is um yeah i do enjoy that aspect there, there are just subtle hints i think this movie does actually does a pretty good job at keeping its twists hidden because in the last one when you watch it the movie over again you and you know the twist you can see every place that Shyamalan has tried to kind of poke your interest in this twist but not really tell you exactly what that twist is just yet i think six sense does it probably the worst in regards to where if you watch it again and know that he's dead literally every single scene plays out in both ways if he was alive or was he if he wasn't alive so i probably shouldn't have said that but i can fix it at editing what i'm saying is this movie does a really good job at keeping the twists hidden without telling you too much before it's too late it keeps those ideas under wraps before it eventually just serves it to you at the very end. And then you're like, oh, interesting. And then you kind of see how it very subtly introduces this idea of the twist. Instead of before where he kind of makes it pretty obvious if you watch it again. I like that idea of it. And you mentioned that you knew that they were living in modern times, right? Yeah, that was that was the twist that I knew going into this movie. And so when I found out that the elders were pretty much just lying the whole time, I was like, oh, okay, well, that's no brainer. I, that is make, that, that's no surprise to me. Okay. Yeah. That, that was a surprise to me because I had, like I said, I went into this movie 100% spoiler free. So I right. did think the creatures were real. I really wished I could recall those earlier feelings because I remember liking the movie. I think I remember being a bit let down. Though, because like I said, our expectations for really what is going on are built up so far, and then they're dropped pretty quickly. I think in hindsight, especially upon reviewing it for Silver Screen Guide, I'm more okay with it because I know what I'm in for. Right. And this is this idea that it's actually in modern day is the reason why it got the lawsuit, because in that story that we mentioned earlier mm-hmm. that was thinking about doing a lawsuit the whole story is wrapped around this idea that this 13 year old girl has is pretty much forced into modern day times when she grew up in a society that says it's 18 like i think it's 1870s now there's no spoiler because that happens within like the first couple of chapters of the book mm-hmm. where she leaves and joins modern society so this idea that this you know village or a group of people uh, hideaway and a village that they think is in the 18, uh, 1800s, but in reality, it's actually in the in the modern day times. Is what caused this whole thing to happen. That's why uh, the author was just like considering all avenues of the of the lawsuit because it's kind of her idea that she had first because she published her book in nineteen ninety six. I want to say, and this one came out in two thousand four. <laughs> so now I don't know if it was, now aside from that very similar aspect of the movie, there's nothing too much that's the same about these two. Um, there are definitely things, some things that could t- be taken as there as plagiarism as she was considering. But I think that there are enough differences here. And that's probably why the lawsuit didn't go forward. There are enough differences here that kind of make it their own works. There's a one line in the movie that I thought was really odd. And it's when, um, this lady is before the elders and she's asking if it's true about Ivy and Lucius. And she said, it is amazing what two people love chooses to unite. It follows no rules. I thought, what in the world is that supposed to mean? They don't, is she saying like they don't see men for each other? 
it's just this weird untrue statement about love and i will say i'm kind of confused as to kind of these people's view of love and god and because being raised in that that whole thing is like so kind of muddled and nebulous it really bothers me because we have i it looks like we have a church and they talk about praying like once and they maybe mention god but then the whole element of god seems to be really lacking from this movie and i'm not i'm not really sure what Shyamalan's trying to go for here and he because by depicting love as this kind of this nebulous force it seems to just say like there's really no guidance to their world it's just kind of up to the elders or just like this random causation I don't know. There needs to be a bit more concreteness as to, especially a society like this would definitely be incredibly church-based, but it's really not here in the movie. Right. I wonder if there that this is the same thing as before we were talking about how women are also in power in this village, where in reality in this time that wouldn't have really been the same wouldn't have been the same thing. I wonder if that's kind of what they're doing. They maybe have some ties to Christianity, but they're really kind of running on their own rules, more or less, because, yeah, they don't really talk about religion in this movie very much. And if they do, it's very shallow, which is interesting because religion has kind of been, or at least something related to religion and Christianity has kind of been in every single Shaolin movie up until this point. Um so, yeah, they don't really dive deep into that stuff. I think it's kind of why I, I find so many issues with this movie. They mention things, and then they don't dive into them. Um, there are only a few, I guess, examples that I can give that they actually do this. They kind of talk about religion here, but then they don't really dive deep into it, but that's kind of a nitpick. But in terms of uh, even leadership... They kind of dive into it, but they don't really go too far with it. The only thing you really need to know is that these elders live on a lie. And that's already about it. Everybody else, every other elder aside from Sigourney Weaver and Joaquin Phoenix are kind of not really important for the story. They're just there as a face for leadership. I don't know. There are a lot of things here that just aren't exactly explained very well either. Along with a twist that I think is just eh. At least the main twist of everything being set in modern day times and it's all a lie is kind of eh to me at least an execution so i would have liked some more ex- i would have liked some more explanation on this but we don't really get that brian uh, Godawa, whose book i talked about earlier does have a really good review of the village on his website where he kind of delves into uh, what he kind of sees as like the religious worldview of the town and uh, i'll give you just a small quote from that because i think it's worth mentioning here kind of he he's he's way beyond me with um some of this stuff but here's here's like a bit he talks about his view of how the religion is presented the town is ruled by elders and they have created fear of monsters to keep the locals in line with their idyllic values of community this is very much like the secular humanistic social theory about religion secularism has faith in naturalism and presupposes the death of god Therefore, since religion can't be true in their little myopic worldview, then religion must be the creation by clergy or elders supernatural to explain what they don't understand of the natural, and fear of ethereal punishment to control the people to do what they say and avoid, quote, progressive society, which will lead astray into its accompanying wickedness and immorality. 
So I think that's a pretty good little snippet there. I do recommend you read his review. But and and I would agree. Yeah. Religion like Christian religion is more so supplanted by numerous superstitions that they create and even to keep it up he gives ivy um edward gives ivy a bag of magic rocks which even fin even fenton and christop don't believe yeah. they're like because it, it contradicts the safe color he's like she's like but we have magic rocks and he says well then why do you wear the safe color or why are we out here if it's not afraid it just kind of shows their whole quasi-religion superstition really falls apart in the face of scrutiny, which isn't hard to scrutinize because they treat some of these people like they're stupid. And um, like the young boys play the game of who can stand there the mm-hmm. longest. And um, who who is it? He's really famous now. He was right. the young boy. Yeah, Jesse Eisenberg is afraid, but Christoph, they're all like, it's an old wives tale. Like everything in this village is pretty much so. Yeah, Shyamalan usually tries to explore right. some kind of religious element, mostly Christian. Um, not always. Sometimes is this kind of weird spiritualism. But in this movie, it's a little too muddled. Yeah, like I said earlier, I wish they would have explored. I they would have explored more avenues of what the elders are actually doing. Mm-hmm. They really only go surface level with what they're doing. Where yeah, it's all built on superstition. Uh, they are the ones who are in the cloaks. And go walk around to scare the the villagers, which, I mean, would somebody realize that one of the elders is missing when they did that? But whatever. <laughs> um, it I don't know. It just, it feels extremely weak. And maybe that's the point. Maybe the whole point of the movie is that this whole thing that they built up is built on a very weak lie. And in which case, and then having kids uh, being raised in the society who kind of end up believing this lie uh, unknowingly. Um, it, it's, it maybe could be the thing that, um, is the reason why they don't really explore or they don't really question things until you get to walking Phoenix's age. Yeah. But even then it's, it just feels weak to me. This whole premise as to them in the village living away, uh, away from society feels just really weak to me. The way that the things that they were doing to keep them, to keep the villagers suppressed just feels weak. Yeah, and once again, the elders have a very childlike hubris to the system they set up where they think we don't really need we, – we can like use like religious things to keep them in line, which is mostly not really religious. It's just superstitious. We're the yeah. elders, so we're in charge. We will be able to guide the town, all of us together, in a way that we know will be best, but we're going to have a very loose set of – of a plan going forward with yeah. all of this and but i see it from just the entire concept of trying to run away from the world and create your own perfect society is to right. me it seems like a very naive thing to to attempt and you can see it doesn't really work it falls apart and right there, we're, we're we are left with they're going to keep it up and it is going to work but nothing will be the same from here on out, and it very well may fall apart. But just that whole idea of trying to leave the world, and if we live like it's 1895, then everything will be okay, that just kind of furthers their, that mentality. Yeah, I would say that it's we don't aren't necessarily left out on a 
uh, on a note where they're going to keep this up. Because they do have this vote, more or less, of, okay, we can either keep up the lie that everything here is what it seems to be and continue on with the world, especially after Bryce Dallas Howard returns somehow, if they're going to keep that up. Um, Or the opposite way is we could tell them this whole thing's a lie and then begin to explain things to them. I think we're more of, we're more left with the choice of what the others are going to do. And then when Bryce Dallas Howard shows up and says, I'm back Lucius. And then the cuts to the credits, it kind of gives us more a confirmation of one way or the other. I think it's more, I think it's more left up to the audience than it is a more a definitive answer, but they, they do stand up when I think he says, if we're going to tell everybody, um, so there is that. It's kind of up in the air as to what really happens in the end because it doesn't go that far. But yeah, that's kind of what I was getting out of ascending here. We do hear from Edward. He says, we can move towards hope. We can't run from heartache. I do love that scene, like I've mentioned before, where everybody kind of has to come to grips. I wish everybody would deal with that more so in a deeper way and more yeah. of a realization instead of him just telling that to them and them just really just being like, okay, whatever. Cut to back back to Ivy. Let let her be chased around by a monster we know is fake, which right. bothers me. Um, we'll talk about that here in just a minute. But, oh, I do feel there is a missed opportunity when he sends Ivy out into the woods and the elders are like, you fool, she's blind. Okay, if they would have had more of a faith... Then he could have said, she walks by faith, not by sight, which... Or something along those lines, yeah, instead of saying, she's led by love. Yeah, because uh... I think that would have been, I mean, that's a that's a scripture um, from the Bible that he could have quoted and could have used. I think that just would have, I'm like, that's a missed opportunity. Come yeah, on. Or, or at the very least, at least alluded to that idea. But... Yeah. I, I I don't know. I I really take issue with this line of she's led by love. That I don't I don't I think this movie's view of love is also one of those things where it's kind of muddled. They don't really explain what they believe. They kind of say that love is whatever it does whatever it needs to do has no bounds. <laughs> yeah. And then they just don't explore that idea. Um right. then again we also have this idea that she's led by love. Because she loves Joaquin Phoenix, and I understand that, but it's also, let's be honest, a really cheesy line that he says. This movie, like I mentioned earlier, this movie does not take its time to explore the more interesting aspects of what it's bringing up here. It's incredibly surface level with the things that I personally find interesting, that is these people's views on certain ideas like love and kind of religion they kind of only bring this up a little bit how they kept up the slide things like that but they don't really dive into that they're someone's focus is on something much different than that yes this film takes a humanism approach to love where it's all found within the power of the human spirit or the drive derived from your connection with another person instead of a higher power that instills that within us which comes down to a few different things um it does this movie does seem to instead of championing like reason it more so champions follow your heart which is usually not something you should champion because i really don't like those movies where it's just like follow your heart follow your emotions usually that means 
abandon your your wife and your life and go off and forge your own f- fantasy or something, which is ridiculous. Whereas reason, you need to have reason approaching this. Um, also, the other thing that it brings up is, gosh, I forgot. No. Okay, let me think for a minute. Love when this happens. Dang it. Um, okay, yeah, I remember now. The other thing this also brings up is destiny versus fate. Destiny is more so a divinely driven purpose, whereas fate is a God replacement. It's just this nebulous goodwill that will come upon you. Um, I'd say the best example of that is in the movie Castaway. They really ascribe they that movie has nothing to do with God, which is totally unrealistic, and it's all just fate that just magically brings about all of his life circumstances and his ending, which I won't give away. If you want to watch that, I say that's a pretty good movie for depicting destiny versus fate. And uh, yeah, like Alan was saying here, she is guided by love. What what the heck is love? You're not going to subscribe it to some finely driven power. You're just going to say it's just this nebulous fate that just so happens for her to be able to do this so yeah if yeah we are kind of diving into the meat of that there this third act which really should be relying a lot stronger upon faith than superstition seems to just go into humanism of the power of the will 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 work out right and everything you're explaining is only kind of talked about in this movie too Yes, I think that there. I think that what Shama ran into is there are too many things that he has to explain. So instead of taking the time to explain that, and it turns into a two and a half hour long movie, he kind of reels it in, chops off everything at the pretty much at the door, and just leaves it surface level. And I think he does this because we are also kind of just led to believe that there are still some societal ideals in this community that they have some modern ideals that are still at play. Not just the fact that, you know, women are in power when they usually wouldn't be at this time at this time in uh, in society, but also this idea of love and things like that, because it, we kind of get this idea that they're moving away from, uh, from marriage being the thing that's already kind of predetermined, by, predetermined by the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But we still have a blessing from the father. So, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting. I mean, it, it it's good and bad because it helps with, we talked about this earlier, it helps with the twist and showing us that, hey, you know, every, especially after you watch it again, or maybe are a really big history buff, you kind of notice that this is not exactly how this kind of society would work in this time of a, in this, in this time of year, um, at least by how it was run back in the 1800s, then find out later that it's all, you know, it's all a lie. At the same time, though, once again, I've said this many times before, it's kind of just not really explored, which is unfortunate because I find some of this stuff really kind of interesting. And I want to know what is Shyamalan thinking and what is what does the society believe? But they never dive into any of that. It's all about someone's passion to follow their heart, more or less. That's what it ends up being at the, at the end. Okay, I'm going to give you a rundown of my final thoughts for the third act here. Ivy is running from the creature. I have a problem with this because we already know the creature is fake. But she's still super scared of it. Right. And it would have been better for the audience if we didn't know. And then we we realized it the same not, – not necessarily at the same time. But 
if she remembered, wait a minute, you know, they aren't real. And then it shows the flashback and then she's able to overcome that fear. To me, when I first saw the movie, I thought, is he trying to make us think that the creatures are actually real? Because Ivy remembers when her father said, I used to teach a history course that there that people always believed there were creatures in these woods. And I thought, are we going to get another twist and find out one of these things is real? Although it looks like somebody running around in a costume. Um, that that yeah. whole kind of like trying to subvert our expectations really doesn't work at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this, this I think, is probably the worst of uh, the movie here because, okay, for one, okay, let me start from where Joaquin Phoenix died or almost died because Noah goes and tries to kill him, right? And then they find out that it was Noah. They lock him away in the, I guess, the quiet room is what they call it, which was set up earlier because he gets in a fight with another kid in town and then Ivy almost puts him in the quiet room. So while in the quiet room, apparently there's just an extra costume lying around in there underneath the floorboards for some reason. And then he's able to escape because he hasn't been able to escape before. And then after, when she's, okay, when Bryce Dallas Howard's in the woods, she is scared of this of this creature walking around. Now, to be fair, I guess you could make up the excuse that she doesn't know it's one of these creatures because she's blind. Which is fine, but it's still is okay. It's still trying to create suspense in an area that we, the audience, know that there is absolutely no suspense to be made here because we've already been told that these creatures are just the odors in disguise. And we find out a little bit later um, that it's Noah who did this, but I think this happens after this scene. Even then, we know that there is pretty much no threat here. So it just kind of comes off as this scene that's just like what. Just to get rid of Noah's character. That's really all. It's really the only reason why it exists here is so that way Noah's character has an exit point um, for his. I guess the idea that they had for his character to be in, in this movie that, in the first place. And we do realize that Noah is the one that's been skinning the little creatures all along and causing terror, which does confuse the elders just as much. I think I would have appreciated more confusion on the elders' part, where they would have because. I don't think that's telegraphed to us enough that the elders are. Oh, no, no, not hardly at all. Right. And I understand they couldn't do that at a certain. Okay. I think Shyamalan is a smarter filmmaker than this. He could have figured out a way to give us the elders really questioning this um, whole thing. It just, it doesn't work. And uh, what it is, is he's wrote himself into a corner. Um, where he thought of the twist first, which is a good thing. You want to think of the twist first, not afterwards. But I don't think the story that he made here helps reinforce this twist at the very end very well. Because, yeah, the elders should have been displayed as being more confused when the pig skin or these skinned animals are lying all over the ground than they were displayed as. We don't really get the reactions on this. Or really anything aside from the explaining that we didn't do this, it was somebody else. And then we find out that Noah was the one who was doing this, which is really strange to me because uh, he only plays a small part in this story, or at least has come out to play a very small part in the story. And then apparently we find out that he actually plays a very big part in this story, 
for reasons that we aren't ever explained. It, I think what's going on here is Shyamalan has just wrote himself into a corner and is trying to find ways to get out and explain this twist, but I mean, because of the circumstances, he can't do that very well. Yeah, and then she finally gets over the wall. Her journey took way too long. I really lost interest on her long journey. Yeah. What do you think? It took too long. Yeah, and it's about the time when she leaves to go into the forest. This is, and then everything is beginning to come be revealed to the audience. This is, I think, the moment in the story where I'm just like, okay, this movie is falling apart because from the first minute until now, I've been pretty much on board for everything that's been happening. Everything's pretty super. Everything's pretty supernatural ish, uh, supernatural esque. Uh, things are. N- not really as they seem it kind of feels like but there's still a lot, of, a lot of intrigue on my part until Bryce Dallas Howard leaves to go into the forest I feel like we're just someone's really trying to push for this twist and everything leading up to this hasn't really helped reinforce that very well although I said earlier that I think the twist is disguised better than the other ones I don't think the twist here is necessarily nearly as good as those other twists in his last one I do love this twist where she does climb over the wall and find she's in the modern world. I think my idea is better. I think a plane should have flew overhead. Um, that would have definitively ruined everything, though, for the village, which I don't have a problem with. But, okay, so the original <laughs> yeah. ending was she was going to climb over the wall and see, well, she can't see anything. We would see that right. it's all taking place in the modern day world, and they have created this regressed village the movie would just end but Shyamalan right. is like oh great I gotta make a longer ending this movie's not too long to begin with anyway it's a pretty quick watch I would say so what he added was this whole stuff with the really awkward guard Kevin who's the most awkward person ever and then they yeah. get to the guard post and we get probably the worst Shyamalan cameo we've ever seen where he gives us a ton of unnecessary dumb dialogue. And then Ivy gets back. So it takes Ivy like a few days, it seems like, to get to the village. And it does because you can tell it's day and night. And then the, then by the time she gets back, from the time she gets the medicine to the time she gets back, it's like just a couple hours, maybe. Yeah, it's not very long, which, yeah, makes you wonder how big is that forest to the fence then? Yeah, I know. It really gives you the illusion they live in this massive tract of wildlife preserve that nobody is allowed into. So, I mean, I do like that idea of there are these people unwittingly paid to keep anybody out, keep planes out. That's That that mystery is... right. Not as built up as maybe as much as we could have. We just get a bunch of dumb dialogue. But oh, right. and I gotta say, I hate the shot of the dumb, of the dumbstruck guard sitting in his car, with the ladder um, propped up against it. And it's like, why in the world did we need that shot? It's so so awful. Yeah, he's shocked that he finally knows what's happening on the inside <laughs> yeah. of this fence. Which I understand they're keeping. Even Shyamalan himself, the guy, his character mm-hmm. here is the one who we are assuming knows everything about what's going on in there. Mm-hmm. And that he and maybe even the whole service that he's working for or is working or is created and he's running is trying to keep this from even the employees from mm-hmm. knowing, which is a pretty good idea. But yeah, then you have this shot of this guy, this 
super surprised security guard sitting outside after helping the girl over and just like, what have I just witnessed? <laughs> you know, he now knows what's on the other side of this fence. Oh, oh, oh dear. So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for The Village? If this movie went along with what it set up at the beginning and kept that same intrigue for the whole hour and 47 minutes that is its runtime, I may be able to give this a higher rating. Because I honestly, I really did enjoy the first 45, 50 minutes of this movie. Like, legitimately enjoyed these first few minutes. It's the first half, I guess. It's when Bryce Dallas Howard's character starts walking into the woods. That's when, I mentioned this earlier, the whole movie just begins to fall apart. The The twists are revealed, but they don't really help home with substance. Um, everything that we've kind of been led to believe we now know is a lie. Not necessarily in terms of what the village was trying to portray the elders, but also the script because things don't really work together very well. There are a lot of moments here where things I feel should have been explored deeper than what they are. And then for one reason or another, they are not explored hardly at all, which is dumb because I want some more meat on this rib that is the village. I feel like there's more to explore here than what really meets the eye. And I get it. Shaman is not really going for meat in terms of how the village operates, what is its ideals, and things of that nature. It's going for more of a discovery that things are not as they seem, and that you can't suppress human nature, things of that nature. But that the problem is that, for me, leaves out all the intrigue, because I love to have detail. I love to have things small-scale, but explored on such high levels of detail that they become very interesting. So, at the end of the day, yeah, this movie looks very, very good. Roger Deakins, once again, this does a great job. James Newton Howard does a great job. So this movie looks fantastic. But the the meat is spoiled. I don't think this does a very good job at telling a story here, as it, at least in his past few movies. So at the end of the day, 5 out of 10 is not going to be a recommend for me. One thing I think Alan will agree with me on is Shyamalan becomes more so obsessed with preserving the mystery and more excited about the mystery than he does with giving us a satisfying payoff throughout the movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree. M. Night Shyamalan's The Village is a unique Twilight Zone-esque tale that causes us to question our perception of reality and how far will we go to serve our loved ones. Can we make this world we live in better, or should we just make the best of our circumstances? Can we create a new Eden, safe from this world, or eventually will death and sin catch up with us? I find the story to be incredibly creative and fascinating. What if a group of people decided to create a perfect world, free from modern technology and unnecessary burdens? Could it actually work? And how do we achieve it? Through superstition intended to instill a healthy fear? The film says yes and no. The elders learn a valuable lesson in that they can't play God and that ultimately love will prevail, but only through hardship and heartache. The story also demythologizes our superstitions of the unknown. With this, Shyamalan seems to be making less of a statement about religious beliefs and more of a cautionary tale of the harmfulness of irrationality. Of Shyamalan's twists so far, I honestly think this one rivals The Sixth Sense, because it causes us to question everything we've come to believe thus far. Roger Deakins' spaced-out, coldly emotional cinematography and James Newton Howard's subtle yet haunting folk score provides an eerie atmosphere 
that something is not quite right. Performances are all around strong, with Bryce Dallas Howard and William Hurt, to a slightly less extent, stealing the show. The film does suffer from pacing issues in the third act, not to mention harming its own twist by trying to make us think that maybe the creatures are real. The village is solid, albeit I think it could be stronger by giving an equal focus to the thoughts and beliefs of the second generation of villagers instead of mostly the elders. Also, we really need more time exploring, like I said, the beliefs of the elders, more of a stronger reason why they signed on board instead of a quick line. Overall, the mythos of the village, which is fascinating, needs more examination. It's disappointing Shyamalan didn't give more attention to the mythos of the elders. I will say this is a strong follow-up to Signs. I appreciate both for what they are. Signs has a much stronger narrative direction, with a more straightforward, powerful message. The village is more original, with a much better twist, and honestly a more interesting story premise. If Shyamalan had greater explored the inner machinations of the elders and their design of the village, this would be a better film than Signs. I am honestly struggling to decide if this or Signs is better, just to be different, and because I honestly do love a lot of the storytelling elements in this more than Signs, I'm going with The Village. The Village receives 7 stars out of 10 with a solid recommend. And I think the thing that I like most is, you mentioned this in your final thoughts here, is this idea. The idea that we have a village or a group of people, a community that have completely sectioned themselves away from society to live more Mennonite-y and more Amish-y and kind of reject things and have a more, and at least and I, at least proposed more pure, more pure society of their own. I like that idea a lot. But I think the thing that pulls me away from this movie so much is that how much of that idea they don't explore. Yes, and I definitely agree with that. What gives me, I think, more, I'm okay with it more, is I do love the creativity and storytelling so much. I think this could work really well as a short story, probably. I think yeah. this could run with the best of them as far as short stories go. So I, I'm i a storyteller. I've had some short stories published. So for that aspect, I appreciate the originality Shyamalan is pushing here with The Village, especially when... Not a lot of movies lend themselves towards originality. We see that more so in the written medium most often, whereas films are kind of popcorn fodder for the audience. Not every film. I didn't say every film, but just for that. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us on our review of The Village. We want to know what you thought, especially in hindsight. It's been, what, 15 years now since this movie came out? Drawing close drawing close to two decades so i want to know listeners did you see this movie when it first came out in 2004 or shortly thereafter and how has your thoughts changed or are you coming to this fairly new like alan and i and we didn't get our thoughts soured by the marketing material building hype for this movie we just came into it and watched it which is probably another reason why honestly you shouldn't really watch trailers because they'll either give everything away, or they will completely mislead you, or... This is, this is exactly Alan, why I don't watch trailers anymore. 
Alan is, yeah, he definitely doesn't watch trailers. I, I usually watch a teaser trailer. Um, and then after that, I'm good to go. I don't, and sometimes I don't even do that. Sometimes if it's a particular thing, it's like, I don't even do that. I don't read other people's reviews because I really don't want anybody's opinion influencing my own. I kind of just want to go in there pure. So I think the village is a prime example of going there with your own opinions and don't let your, and even if you do read other people's reviews and you're like, that won't influence my opinion. I think it's inevitable. Somehow you're going to now have preconceived notions of, at least what other people thought. So that's why I don't watch trailers that often or read other people's reviews before I've watched it myself. Um, that's why I've watched, I've watched, um, I watched one initial trailer for Avengers Endgame, like the very first teaser, whatever. Mm-hmm. I haven't read anybody's reviews um, except what our friends have told us. And so I'm going in completely blind as possible. Um, nothing's been spoiled for me, so <laughs> I'm, uh, yes, I'm, I'm on the same camp. I just watched it the night before we are doing this recording, uh, and I'm keeping all my thoughts secret until we yes. do that podcast. Keep them secret like the village. Yes. <laughs> well, listeners, thank you. Uh, well, I already said that. Whoops. We will not be coming back to Shyamalan just quite yet. Next week, we will be starting a brand new retrospective series, Men in Black, all three uh, of yes. them. I'm kind of excited for this. I haven't seen any, I've seen a good chunk of the first one. And that's about as far as I, as far as I've gone with these, this, I guess, trilogy and now quadrilogy of movies. Not that long ago, about a month and a half ago, I want to say, my girlfriend and I, we watched all three. She had seen the first one, and she couldn't believe I hadn't seen it. And it's definitely one of those movies that everyone has seen but me. And I did watch all three of them, so I will be coming back to them for the second time in a fairly short uh, gap. So we will be doing Men in Black leading up to this summer's possible blockbuster hit, Men in Black International. It looks fairly promising to me from the cast and from what I've seen. So yeah, I'm looking forward to reviewing these Men in Black movies. I think they'll be pretty fun. They're ones that are in the cultural zeitgeist ever since they came out. Everybody talks about Men in Black. At least the first one. At the very least, the first one is definitely one of those that he was like, what, you haven't seen this? What? (laughs) Yeah. And, well, yes, that's correct. Okay. After we finish with Men in Black 3, we will be coming back to Shyamalan with Lady in the Water, which Alan and I have never seen. That's right. We're both- All I know is that people, some people say it's really creative and some people say it's really silly. Yes. And I guess I should have mentioned this earlier, but for many people, the village is the beginning of the end for what they view as Shyamalan it he kind of really um this is it after from here on out he's just going to do it he's going into free fall until possibly the visit and then split Uh, we'll see when we get there um and then after lady in the water we are watching the happening which i've never seen but alan says it's uh pretty glorious (laughs) uh I bought this on Blu-ray at least recently. I had it on DVD back when uh, before I started my Blu-ray collection, and I remember really enjoying it. And it's been a while since I've seen it, so we'll see if my thoughts still hold up on it. But I remember really liking it because it's uh, <laughs> it's quite the movie, quite quite the watch, quite the looker. I hear. Yeah, uh, yeah. We'll 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 talk about it. 
Um, but then we will be taking another break to review Back to the Future, some classics I'm excited to go over. And then we will be finishing up Shyamalan with, well, all of his remaining films. So I'm looking forward to it, listeners. If you haven't subscribed already, go ahead and click subscribe right now so you will never miss a podcast that comes out. And you should subscribe through iTunes or Podbean or Castro or Google Google Podcasts, whatever you listen through. But also don't forget to subscribe through Facebook and Twitter because all of the updates go through there as well. Also, if you go to the website, you can subscribe through email and read that every Friday. All of those links are in the description below. Very easy to find. Also, if you're listening through iTunes or Google, make sure to give us a five-star rating. That really does help us boost up in the rankings so other people who want to hear a fun podcast about talking about movies and engage with us as well just to create a bigger community over here at Silver Screen Guide, that is the best way to do it. So go ahead and give us that five-star rating. That really does actually help. Some of you have been doing that, and we really appreciate those ratings. Thank you for that. We currently right now have a perfect rating on iTunes. Yeah. Yeah, pretty Beautiful. pretty impressive, huh? Probably sounds like we got the perfect podcast, best one out there. Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. So keep it up, listeners. Uh, all of you are awesome. We really want to say thank you for continuing to listen and subscribe and support Silver Screen Guide. It'll just keep getting bigger. The fan community engagement will just keep growing. And I love that because we love talking about movies and we love talking with you. Alan and I don't just do this to hear ourselves talk. We do it also to engage with you all around the world, which I think is really incredible. Uh, Also, if you do want to further support us and get extra bonus content, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, don't forget to head on over to the Patreon page. That is a really neat area where you can get exclusive bonus content, such as our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, bonus podcasts, question and answer, movie commentary. So it's like you can watch the movie right there with us and get our thoughts on everything you see. So just for the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee, you can get some really great content. The coffee you drink, it's good while you drink it, but it's gone. The content that you get, you buy, it's yours. You download it. I'm not going, if you stop paying us, I'm not going to hack into your computer and take it away because I don't know how. So Alan might be careful. I don't know. I uh, I don't know about that. I don't know. He's pretty smart with the uh, with the old computer. So, listeners, once again, thank you for joining us. We will see you next week with Men in Black. <laughs>